Sweetheart of Swing. You're listening to Stay Tuned, the show for animation lovers, recorded live on YouTube and also streaming on Patreon. Coming to you from Austin, Texas, I'm your host, Phil Maki. My original comics can be discovered at RetailSunshine.com, and you can interact with me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handles of both Retail Sunshine and Phil Maki. Also, you can keep up to date with the latest animation news by visiting this show at facebook.com forward slash stay tuned show. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Tonight, Stay Tuned welcomes Canadian author and illustrator Kaja Blackley. All that, and you'll have a chance to share your thoughts, questions, and opinions with me for a live Q&A after the show. My special guest on tonight's show is an author and illustrator who hails from Canada. His original graphic novel, Darktown, had the unique opportunity of being turned into a Hollywood live-action-slash-stop-motion animated film called Monkey Bone. Now, I reviewed Monkey Bone earlier this summer, but tonight proves to be a special treat because I finally have the opportunity to be talking with that story's creator about that bizarre transformation. We'll uncover the journey from a poignant graphic novel love story to crazy slapstick monkey movies. The multifaceted Kaja Blackley will be joining me here shortly to shed a little light on what went down behind the scenes of Monkey Bone. But first, this. Kaja Blackley, welcome to Stay Tuned. Thank you. Awesome. For those uninitiated, you're an author and illustrator, which is a category very near and dear to my heart, as I also am an author and illustrator, which is a really interesting combination, I think, because there are so many people who kind of focus on one or the other, you know? Absolutely. Would you say that one of those skill sets uh, has come more easily to you than the other one? Because I can definitely tell you that for me, absolutely one over the other. Well, I think one led me to the other. So I always wanted to be an artist since I was a little boy. And uh, I remember announcing when I was about four years old to my parents, this is what I was going to do with my life. And nothing changed my course. I was set on being an artist. I studied to be an artist. But somewhere along the way, I discovered that words were interesting. And some people enjoyed the words that I was using. And so it was a natural development to sometimes write stories for my own artwork, write stories for other people, sometimes draw, sometimes write. So basically one just sort of fed the other one as a necessity. It it did. And it, it was really just, you know, I would be alone with my sketchbook 
coming up with ideas. And I sometimes found the ideas I was coming up with more interesting than ideas that were given to me by other people. And it just became a natural progression. So the story that I have gotten to know your work you know, through is, mm-hmm. is called Darktown. Yes. And that came from a company called Mad Monkey Press, but that's also your your entity as well, right? Well, I really just wanted to self-publish. And it grew after a series of artists kept coming to my studio, showing me the portfolios, telling me how, stories of how no one would hire them and they couldn't find work. And they were very talented. One such person was Vanessa Chong, who worked on Darktown with me. So it developed into a company where my stories, my art, and other artists joined forces, and that became Mad Monkey. Ah, okay. So the impetus for Mad Monkey, was it Darktown as the first story? Um, Well, I had a few. Um, You know, everything was very organic. It was more or less I was setting a course, and I had some capital, and I had some ideas, and I just happened to meet some like-minded individuals, and uh, we set a course. And one of the books that led the way was Darktown. Okay. Because it came out in the early 90s, correct? It did. It did. Probably the worst time it could have ever been. <laughs> you know, but here's the thing, though, about that. I And I've been thinking about this a lot over the years. It was not very commonplace to do self-publishing at that point, correct? You know, you had a few people. Wendy and Richard Pinney with ElfQuest. And, of course, Dave Sim was sort of the leader of the pack with Cerebus. And a lot of people endeavoring to enter that arena. So there were a lot of self-publishers, but a lot of people weren't having a lot of success sustaining themselves. The only other sort of person over time who had success was Jeff Smith. Yeah, okay, yes. Jeff Smith, it wasn't an overnight success, you know? I mean, uh, people ignored Bone. I found Bone very early on, and I thought it was terrific. Sure. But it wasn't selling very well. And I, you know, if I remember right, it was uh, a review that he received in the Comic Buyer's Guide and then an eight-page promo in Cerebus that really brought Jeff Smith's work to the forefront. And then everybody realized he was the best-kept secret in comics. That is actually really interesting. And I would also want to throw out there, to a degree, Eastman and Laird with the Turtles. I mean, that was... Oh, yeah. They were breaking ground as well. But I, I still look at the work done in the early 90s. Uh, even the work in some of the, maybe not mainstream comics, but... But that was a real groundbreaking time for anything being printed. The problem was that if you had a good idea and someone tried to bring something different into the superhero mold, they were met with a great deal of resistance. Or people just didn't want to invest a lot of money in it. Because, you know, again, as a retailer, you've got to look at it. I can sell 100 copies of this or five copies of this. I'd rather invest my money in buying Marvel or DC because uh, they're paying my rent. Very true. And guys like New England Comics. uh, Oh, The Tick? The Tick. I mean, you know, that's that's another (laughs) I view his work similar to what you were doing and similar to what the Turtles were, because it was Mm -hmm. sort of on the fringe of comics. So in a way where it's intriguing enough that you want to look at it, but it's not well known enough that, you know, people are going to recognize it right away. Yeah, I mean, and the tick was really charming, you know, I mean, it was it was really well written. Yeah, and it was funny. And like with Eastman and Laird, they grew with each issue. Right. So it became more interesting. You know, looking back, the comic market was more welcoming if you were doing a single publication. So if you were someone like a Jeff Smith and you were only focused on doing Bone, 
the market seemed to allow you to maybe sustain yourself. But a lot of the companies that were trying to produce work didn't survive. Mm. So Darktown was limited to one issue. It was limited to one issue. Many reasons behind that. You know, we ran into the unfortunate reality that the comics market in North America almost collapsed. Uh, yes. You had large publishers buying distributors or going exclusive with distributors, changing the rules of the game. And so almost overnight, you went from, I think it was 13 distributors to two distributors. Let's say if there was 10,000 retail stores, about 5,000 went bankrupt. So all of a sudden, your distribution channels shrunk and the amount of stores that were buying independent books shrunk. And so it was very difficult to generate the type of orders one would need to survive. Mm. Okay. So, you know, with a lot of our books, we were finding that initially we were doing okay. And then once all this happened, we were getting terrible orders. The remaining distributors would tell us to resolicit books and they would help us bring up our orders, but that never happened. You know, we even went to try and create our own distribution venues, you know, through self-distribution. But it was a difficult time and retailers were scrambling to survive. It wasn't a level playing field either. The larger publishers had better deals with the distributors. So it was the idea was to evolve comics. Not that we were going to be the only company to do it, but we wanted to introduce something that was different. The size of our books was different. The way we produced them was different. The ideas were different. You know, I've always loved superhero comics. I have nothing against superhero comics, but that's one market. And I just felt that there was an audience that was being ignored. And I wanted to grow that audience or help grow that audience. Well, I, I definitely think you you stepped in the right direction with that because, you know, one of the standout moments of Darktown happens about halfway through the book. It's the part where the little girl with the mask eating the, mm -hmm. the two guys and then our hero is running across to a, a phone booth. Mm -hmm. And just the colors alone on that, uh, on the spread, is yeah. gorgeous. You're right. It's not like anything that I could relate it to from that time. And you've also got it printed on black paper, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, we spent a lot of time thinking about the overall presentation. First, obviously, the content. But then it was the overall presentation. And each issue of Darton that we had worked out was going to be different. I mean, issue seven was going to have a pop-up. So right in the center of the book, there would be a pop-up of Darktown. Oh, wow. And you would actually almost pull Jacques de Bergerac, the main character, through this pop-up and then you would turn the page and get back into the story and we had all these different things and dyes made and setups done so Darktown was going to be a feast a visual feast but unfortunately as I said we just didn't get the orders to want moving ahead do you think that that's something you would ever want to reapproach? see it depends I mean I, I tend never to go back I like to move forward I'm not against doing a collected Darktown you know you'd almost have to go to something like Kickstarter and raise a great deal of money so that you had the amount of money you needed to do the book the way you wanted to do it. I just don't see the comic market sustaining a product or a project like this. So it would have to be individual collectors and enough of them. And I, I don't know if there's enough out there to warrant it, to be honest. Well, that's fair. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's definitely a shame, but I completely see where you're coming from with that. It is a beautiful book and it is definitely not the typical size, which I, I think is when I, you know, when I got my hands on it, I was a little surprised by that, but you know, in a good way, because the images that are in there, you wouldn't want to squish them. <laughs> no, well, and that was the thing too. There were some retail outlets that just loved what we were doing. And 
sold tons of copies. And there were other ones that complained that we didn't conform. They were quite upset that, you know, it didn't fit into a comic book rack or it didn't fit into the typical plastic bag that comics go into. And so, you know, it was, we were running into some people welcoming the change and some people disliking the change. You know, I mean, I, I remember one retailer calling me once and saying I could have sold 400 copies. And this is an actual quote of Darktown had it been comic book size. And really? I thought that was odd. I, I thought, well, what's the difference between this size and comic book size? It's the content that matters. Maybe it's the familiarity. I mean, I, I, I almost kind of raise an eyebrow at that statement that that person made to you because it's a presumption, you know. Mm-hmm. Since you are an artist uh, and author, when you made Darktown, was it weird handing the reins over to another artist? Well, I did more art behind the scenes than I took credit for. Oh. I actually removed my name from the credits of that book. So I did all the layouts and many of the character designs for Darktown. I'm really glad I, to hear that, actually, because like when I read that you were the author, the first issue, there's not a ton of dialogue. No, and there's not meant to be. Right. You know, I mean, the thing with comic books for me is that it's economy, economy of prose, you know, it's it's about composition and, and you have to know how much to sprinkle here and there. Now, Vanessa, the artist that illustrated the book, she brought this really interesting portfolio into my studio one day. It didn't look anything like Darktown, but it was these beautiful pastel cubist type of drawings. Yes. And I thought, where have you been all my life? And, <laughs> and she was telling me that no one would hire her. So I hired her on the spot. And, you know, I trained her for a few months and we worked together. And then I set her to work on Darktown. And uh, she did a beautiful job. I'll tell you what, the Cubist and the Pastel combination works and is such a compliment to the marionette and puppet feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, it, they work in tandem. And I, I think you made a good choice in Vanessa. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And then even the, you know, the realistic scenes, they were all done in pencil crayon. So, you know, the board was gessoed and then painted brown and then everything was drawn on top of that and textured. Everything was done by hand. Yeah, this is all pre-digital, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's what's so beautiful about it. Some of the illustrations she did of Jacques' wife are just heartbreaking. Yeah. And those particular instances, that's where I would give her a lot of guidance or I do, well, all those things, I would do the drawings first and then give them to her and then she would use that as the basis for her own art. So, you know, we worked in tandem with that. Very interesting. Well, that's good to know. I'm glad you were more involved than I thought because I'm like, well, he wrote it, sure, but I don't see a lot of writing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, because of the nature of Mad Monkey, I mean, you know, even though we had a a designer, I was always designing logos and and sitting down and putting together the book or putting together the advertisements or whatever. I mean, I always have my hand in everything. It's clear to me from looking at the pages that it lends itself to be filmed. And animation also seems very likely Mm -hmm. a, a logical step when you look at the images alone. At one point, Henry Selleck got his hands on the book and he decided he wanted to turn it into a stop motion film, right? Yeah, and this was long before comics were really being turned into film. Right. The phone rang at the studio, and it was Henry Selleck's assistant, and he asked if I would speak to Henry Selleck. And I sort of laughed because (laughs) I had just, well, I had just been joking with my staff, I kid you not, saying, well, look, if Henry Selleck calls, we'll make a movie of Darktown with him. (laughs) <laughs> and, I, I, and then the phone rings you know that just sounds like you like you essentially manifested it it was truly funny and you know Henry was on the, the other end and we had a, a really nice talk and we found that we shared uh, similar sensibilities and you know at one point Henry felt that we shared the same creative brain and he offered to fly me down to San Francisco to uh, Tritch and Image 
and we'd sit down and discuss about the possibilities of turning Darktown into a movie. Wow, okay. And, so And he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> but what came of that, which is Monkey Bone, is uh, I would say after reading Darktown, it's a far cry. I mean, it's, it's like taking the nuts and bolts of something, but then removing all the details in between. <laughs> I mean, it's... Well, yeah, you don't recognize it. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, when, when Henry flew me down, he had had massive sets built of the Darktown characters, all finished. And I mean, I'm talking gigantic sets. And they were amazing. And he had his whole team involved. He went out of his way to show me how interested he was in this project. And he had already optioned several other projects that he was developing. So it wasn't sort of like he didn't have other irons in the fire. But he just really believed in in Darktown. And so, you know, we agreed to move forward and he acquired an option and he bought the entire story treatment from me, not just the first issue. And then I worked with some of his team members, his story people, and we put together a really neat proposal based on the complete Darktown story. And then he he had just been dropped from Disney. And let's just say that, you know, that wasn't the smartest move Disney ever made. Oh, of course not. But he was a free agent at that point in time. And he went around and 20th Century Fox picked picked up the Darktown option. And somewhere between that and Sam Hand becoming involved and Chris Columbus becoming involved, it slowly changed into monkey bone. So early on, even even in the 20th century process, Henry would call me or he would come up to Toronto and we'd spend time and we'd talk about the project. But at some point, uh, the phone calls became less consistent and I started to learn more and more about this movie through fan magazines. Oh dear. And, uh, yeah. So ironically enough, uh, <laughs> Disney bought 20th Century Fox. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. You know? And, I, and I'll, I'll be very honest here. I think Henry's a very talented filmmaker and uh, you're not not going to hear me say a bad word about Henry. I believe that if Henry had made Darktown the way we had discussed, it would probably have been his most successful film of all. And, you know, I don't think he's happy with Monkey Bone either, but you'd have to ask him. I've never asked him that. But, you you know, I have no doubt that Henry would have added his touch to it and, and, and it would have worked. Sure. It would have worked because he has the palette for it. He has, when he tells a story, if you were to read the treatment on paper, it might sound outlandish, but then Mm -hmm. you watch it and you're just along for the ride, you know? It's true. It's a collaboration. So I remember when I went down and they had this gigantic set build, like I was saying when I first went to meet Henry, and and some of the animators or the sculptors were telling me, oh, when we were working on death, we we added this little touch into it, and we hope you don't mind, but when we animate it, it'll be more interesting. And things like that are beautiful. It's collaboration. I wouldn't have thought of that. So you got to go on set then? I No, this is early on. So I wasn't on set. I wasn't invited to the movie set. And that wasn't really part of my contract anyways. But when Henry first pursued Darktown and flew me down to San Francisco, he already had sets built, gigantic sets. I sent you one of the pictures. You did, yes. And, and so that was a, that was a, actually a massive set. It was like a real stop motion set. And, and the character of death, the detail they had put into this character and little additions that the sculptors had added to the character, explaining that when it went into stop motion, why they would do this. I mean, those elements people add to a movie and they make the movie better. And those are things that never got used then, right? Never got used. Never got used. What a shame. And it's a shame because, you know, even his his staff was excited about the project. Oh, man. This is what happens. Did you at least go to see the premiere for free on their dime? (laughs) Oh, no. 
I mean, so the, the thing is that they had the opportunity to have me work on the, the movie if they had wanted to. And Henry was very good early on at always calling me and saying, there's going to be this minor adjustment. Would that be okay with you? And he was very fair at doing that early in the production. And then at some point, there were just no more phone calls. No one called. No one was interested. I was cut out of the picture. And, you know, that's also their prerogative. Let's just pretend that mm -hmm. you wanted to go and tell the full story that didn't get told. Do you even have the ability to do that? Or did he buy oh, the rights? No, I have all the rights for that. I have all the print rights and comic book rights and all of that. I own all that. Okay, that's and, good. And, but as I said, it's it's sort of like throwing good energy after bad. I mean, it was it was a different place in time and it was a, yeah. a very exciting place. But, you know, I'm in a different place in my life and I'm a different age now. So, And again, it takes such an effort to complete it and put it together that I would have to know ahead of time that there was the built-in audience. Otherwise, it's, as I said, it's a waste of good energy. You know? I agree. And I, for that reason, I would imagine it makes you wary of any Anybody wanting to sign you a, on a deal? Well, I've done other deals in Hollywood and I've, you know, sold other properties. But, you know, when I sold Darktown, everybody was like, well, that's nice, but it'll never happen. But I believed in Henry and Henry made it happen. But it's a fluke. You know, I mean, for every story there is like Darktown being made into a movie, there's a thousand people that have sold an intellectual property that can go right to development about to be greenlit and fall apart. And I've been through all those journeys. I've sold intellectual properties. I've had things developed right to the point they're going to be greenlit. So it's just the nature of the beast. Have you had anything else greenlit that I would know about? I haven't had anything greenlit. I've had things close, you know. And we'll see what the future brings. I mean, yeah. I never say no to Hollywood. There's a lot of good people that work in the industry. It's just a lot of them have their hands tied. I'm really glad that I now can see it from both sides because as uh, strange as the film turned out, I can see glimmers of what was hoped for. Um, mm -hmm you know, peeking through in between all of the whatever the final product is. And I had to kind of smile when I was reading your book because I started to notice like, ah, there's the seeds of where that came from, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and that was interesting. I mean, but as somebody who makes independent comics myself, I can't imagine someone taking something that I made and then twisting it like that. Uh, I mean, when you watched the film, I assume you watched the film. Yep. <laughs> did you laugh? Were you horrified? I mean... <laughs> did I cry? Yeah, did you cry? Um, well, you know... I'll give you two answers. I mean, one, I, I don't want it to ever sound like sour grapes because, of course, you know, I, I made the deal. I signed the contract. The check didn't bounce. So, you know, from that perspective, I believe that Henry was going to move in one direction. Uh, it looked like that, you know, and then I went to the theater. It was another boyhood dream off the checklist, seeing my name up on screen in a movie. That's nice. Yeah. And beyond, beyond that, I didn't recognize the picture at all. I mean, at times you could hear me in the theater going, what? <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the few people I was with, my wife and a few other friends were just like, are you okay? And I was like, I just couldn't believe the decisions that were made because they were so poor. I'm going to give Henry the benefit of the doubt and say, I don't know how much power and control Henry had over everything. Well, based on interviews I, alone, he claims that he really didn't. Yeah, you know. and, I, and I somewhat believe that I think that there were too many people influencing this movie and it just goes to show you that when you veer too far away from the source material and when you take 
a project out of the hands of creative people. Sure. Um, something like Monkey Bone is what you get. For the listening audience that hasn't read the book, I'm just going to give one example where it's just interesting to see how one thing became another. Your main character, Jacques, he has this magic suitcase, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's this bright red color. And it reminded me a lot of Felix the Cat's Bag of Tricks, mm-hmm. which I love that. So that was very cool. And there is a red suitcase in Monkey Bone, but it appears for just the briefest of moments. And it's merely to carry the different named lead character, his emotional baggage. <laughs> Yep. And yeah. so I'm like, yeah, I guess there's a red suitcase. Yeah, you guys managed to keep that one detail in there. But it's just so interesting how one thing can just be morphed into another, you know? I mean, I can appreciate it. I mean, there have been some times where someone's taken a story that's been mediocre and made changes to it and improved it. But nothing was improved upon. And I mean, they changed everything. They changed all the names of the characters, which they didn't need to do. They changed, you know, designs. And, you know, initially, very early on, before Nicolas Cage won his Academy Award for Leaving Las Vegas, and when he was still pretty much an interesting actor before he went very Hollywood, he was actually going to star as Jacques de Bergerac in Dark Town. He really liked Dark Town. And he was going to do the movie with Henry Selleck. That would have been a really good pairing, actually. And and I, I, obviously, I don't know the whole story because only the one issue was released but was there ever even a monkey aside from the company name mad monkey press is there even a monkey in the story at all no i mean really what dark town at its core it's a love story it's a story about letting go i mean i had this idea of a wife who was faced with this you know horrible decision her husband's been in a car accident he's in a coma and we all know that there's like a grace period where someone can come out of a coma and there isn't the possibility for brain damage. And then the longer someone's in a coma, the more possibility there is for trauma. So I, I had this idea, well, what if, you know, the truest form of love is letting go? So rather than holding on to her husband's body, this beautiful lady decides to let her husband go, but sort of as a gesture of hope, she decides to wait 12 hours. And then, of course, she finds out in those 12 hours that she's pregnant. And then she has a whole other... Wow. um, She wrestles with, do I let my child's father go? Do I try and hold on to something even though everything's pointing in the direction that, you know, he won't come out of the coma? And so that's that was sort of one half of the story. And then the other half of the story was death coming to Jacques in Darktown and saying, look, you've got 12 hours, you have to find the exit back into reality. And if you don't, your wife's going to shut off your life support system. And interestingly enough, that one factoid almost remained intact in Monkey Bone. Yeah, but it was so, I mean, it was just horrible the way it was done. Oh, yeah. It was just, just, yeah. just terrible. Yeah. You see, my, my whole thing was that the exit back into reality is actually the birth canal. Oh, wow. The story really was that Jacques does find Alice's diner and he does find the exit back into reality. But what it is, is his essence merges with his child's essence. And as his child is being born, that's the exit back into reality. Oh, wow. That's so, that's very poetic. Henry knew the whole story. He had the whole story. He really loved it. Yeah. You know, I mean, he even told me that it was difficult when he was pitching it to convince people that it would be an interesting story if a guy was in a coma. (laughs) Well, I mean, it is, it is very interesting. There's a very Alice in Wonderland dreamlike feeling through the story. And by that, I don't mean that you were mirroring Alice in Wonderland per se, but there's a lot of this running through foreign wilderness pursued by strange characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, You even have Alice's Diner. You know, there's even that. Yep, yep. 
one of the things in Alice's Diner was going to be like famous people who had died. So there was going to be John Coltrane and John Lennon, all these other people hanging out in the cafe. See, that's so funny. And again, you're right. It's not the same thing. But in Monkey Bone, they had these famous people imprisoned that they had. Mm -hmm. I'm always amazed where if even if you keep the nuts and bolts, it does not mean you've retained the original story. There's such importance in those details and the in-between the bullet points that matter so much to a story. And what happened with you reminds me a lot of what happened with the Disney film The Emperor's New Groove. I don't know if you were familiar with that at all, but that film started off very differently, uh, not as a book, but they had a, an idea and it, the director of that film had an idea. And by the time you know it went through the machine, it was a completely different animal that because it retained enough of the bullet points, he could never go and tell that story now because it's similar enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I do. So that's that sounds, I mean, that just sounds frustrating. <laughs> it is. And, you know, if I could wave my magic wand, I would have the movie be Dark Town and I'd have it right. um, appear on screen the way that I had envisioned it. Sure. Well, and but, there's still a chance. You know, but that's that's the Hollywood machine, as you're saying. And, and yeah. you know, my story is like a hundred other stories of people that sold ideas. And Hollywood gets involved. And people who really have no right in being in the creative process get involved. Yeah. And, you know, and we're seeing that more and more in the way films are being made now. They're being made by committees. And every film looks like every other film now. Every trailer sounds like every other trailer. There's, there's yeah. very little that's individual anymore. Very true. And, you know, here's the thing, though. Henry Selleck has gone on to have a pretty illustrious career, I would say, with Coraline. And there's a chance, I guess, if one day he wanted to go and do an independent thing, he probably could. But like you said, it would require a massive load of capital to back it up, mm-hmm. especially just looking through the pages of Darktown. I mean, the amount of it's such a visual story. Yeah. I was going to ask, so I, I kind of had to dig a little bit to get this book. I had to find somebody online that was selling a copy, thankfully in very good condition. But if other people want to discover your work, Kaja, where can they find you and what are you working on these days? Well, I'm out of comics for the most part. And I wrote a young adult novel called Maggie McCormick and the Witch's Wheel. And uh, after it was completed, I had some very serious interest from some heavy publishers. But I wasn't really excited with the offers and then a lot of publishers now want you to promote your own book so they don't you know they don't want to invest a lot of money in promotion now they want you to do it all so once i saw what was coming back and being presented to me i thought you know I published before I have the connections. So I decided to run an Indiegogo campaign and see if I could pre-sell Maggie and start my own printing of it. And I ran a successful Indiegogo campaign and then Maggie's going to be released toward the end of August and available for the general public in September. Oh, how appropriately timed is this conversation we're having? (laughs) Very much so. I, I wish I could claim that I planned it that way. (laughs) But sometimes life works out that way, I suppose. It does. Well, thank you so much, Kaja, for spending some time with me today and sharing your your story of both Dark Town and Monkey Bone and, and Maggie, of course, which I, I think is sounds like a great idea for a story. Well, so far, so good. I mean, it's really been resonating with people. And, and the website is MaggieMcCormick.com. Once again, Kaja, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out of your uh, your schedule to chat with us here at Stay Tuned. My pleasure. Thank you most kindly. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, <laughs> have, have a great day. <laughs> oh. You too, man. 
As always, we're about to take a short intermission where we'll listen to a little music from tonight's feature. That was a selection of score from Monkey Bone called Welcome to Downtown, composed by Ann Dudley. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Special thanks go out to Kaja Blackley once again for joining us here on the show. His newest book, the very recently released Maggie McCormick and the Witch's Wheel, is available from MaggieMcCormick.com. Of course, thanks to all of you listening live on YouTube. And say, if you enjoyed the show and would like to listen anytime, why don't you join me over on Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash Phil and become a subscriber today. Not only are there cool rewards, but you can also stream this show anytime you like, which means never missing an episode. I've been Phil Maki, you've been a wonderful audience, and until next time, keep those eyeballs peeled, those ears open, and be sure to stay tuned. (laughs) 